Um, these next three weeks, including today, we're talking about, uh, we're focusing on this theme that's on those little invite cards, darkness to light. Darkness to light. This morning, uh, we are talking a little bit about the shadows, specifically that the shadow proves the sunshine. If you're here and you're about my age and you're like, That's, that sounds familiar, it's totally a song title that I stole from a band. If you know what it is, I'll buy you a cup of coffee without looking it up, no Googling it. The shadow proves the sunshine. Now, shadows are traditionally something that we associate as humans with fear. Now, when we were young, many of us may have even said, maybe you still would, but many of us when we were young, we would have said that we are afraid of the dark. Of course, what creates the most shadows in a room, though, is the light and where the light is coming from, right? Every room has shadows. One of the greatest purchases I have ever made in the history of my life was about the first week that we had John 4. Those of you that have had little babies, you understand, you probably remember just how challenging that first week often is, and even if you think you're prepared, um, you just aren't prepared, right? It's different than you ever think it will be. It's more than you ever think it will be, and of course, his room had a regular light on the ceiling with a switch, right? It's just a regular room. You flip the switch, the light comes out on the top. But we also had a lamp in the corner, and we thought between the light on the ceiling and the lamp in the corner, that would be sufficient, you know, all the levels of brightness. But we quickly realized that when we finally got that little stinker to sleep, because, man, he did not like to sleep. Both of our boys were terrible sleepers. Very quickly, we realized that even the lamp in the corner was way too bright. We turn off the overhead light, and then we had the lamp in the corner. Very quickly, we realized it was way too bright. So I went to Home Depot during that first week, and I sleepily hunted up and down the aisles till I found this little dimmer switch I could put in line with the lamp. Plugs into the outlet, the lamp plugs into the dimmer. Then you can move the brightness of the lamp up and down, kind of like we do with these lights. We're still using that thing. It is the best 10 bucks I ever spent in my life. Because in that room, depending on where you have the lamp settings, there's different differing levels of light, and that means there's differing levels of shadows. And as the boys got older and they share a room now, there's differing levels of shadows, right? So if we've got that thing pretty bright, it's not too shadowy, you get it about halfway and they start to be able to make shadow puppets on the wall. You get it down far enough, it gets pretty shadowy in there. If you've had kids, you've gone through that. In fact, just the other night, John Ford decided that he wanted to have it completely dark in his room. They've got this little dinosaur nightlight. And they have the lamp. And so he said, Dad, I want to I make it completely dark. I said, okay, you try it. <laughs> Walked out, shut the door. Both him and Luke, they shut the lights off. They came right back out. Oh, we changed our mind. <laughs> Too dark. <laughs> to be honest, though, when it comes to being afraid of the dark, it's not actually the dark that we're afraid of. The truth is. It's the shadows that the changing light creates that we are afraid of most of the time. And we think that the shadows are where the scary things reside, right? And the fear often comes from what we may or may not see moving out the corners of your eye, right? When you're walking down a dark street in the city you're unfamiliar with and you see shadows, man, it just makes you walk a little faster. The fear doesn't come from the dark. The fear comes from the shadows. But I'd like to submit to you this morning that in our lives, shadows don't have to be synonymous with fear, said, I believe that God wants us to know on this Palm Sunday, April 10th, 2022, that the shadows of the world only prove the existence of the light. 
that in our darkest moments, in our hardest days, in the midst of our greatest sin, our most difficult heartbreak, that indeed the shadow proves the sunshine. Because you see, friends, I think God wants us to know this. The shadow of the cross stands over all of time. If you've been here at all over the past several weeks, then you know we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We're through the first couple of chapters. And we've touched on that covenant that God had with his people. In order to purify themselves, right, in the Old Testament, they would bring animal sacrifices for their sins, just as God had commanded them, just the right way. These were specifically directed by God. There were traditions held and commandments that they tried to uphold, but the condition of their hearts didn't always match up. That's what we talked about some in the first two chapters of Ephesians. Many of Israel's leaders in the Old Testament had begun to realize that it wasn't a sacrifice God was looking for, but a surrendered heart. He wasn't looking for a sacrifice, but a surrendered heart. Even throughout the Old Testament, the shadow of the cross had begun to be cast thousands of years before. Very early in the Old Testament, we can see it really plainly. We're going to read for a moment. We're kind of going to kind of be all over the place. So you're going to get to uh, practice your Bible turning skills or your screen touching skills, whichever way you want to do it. We're going to read for a moment today out of Exodus chapter 12. Because you see, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites, they are in captivity to the Egyptians. This is right when, in Exodus, is when Moses is born. He's rescued from the river by Pharaoh's daughter. And he eventually becomes the leader of the Israelites. Remember, he kills an Egyptian, and they find out he's an Israelite, and they cast him out. And in Exodus 6, God promises Moses that the Israelites, they'll be delivered from Egypt. See, they're in captivity. In Exodus 6, God says this, Exodus 6, 6, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. So the Israelites are in captivity. God is saying to Moses, you go tell these people that I've given you, these kind of stubborn people, I am going to deliver you. And God would go on to send plagues against Egypt as a sign to Pharaoh that he should let the Israelites go. Right? There's a famous thing there where Moses says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you've seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt, right, there's a famous scene in there. But God would go on to send these plagues against Egypt, and they are intense. First plague. In Exodus chapter 7, the rivers turned to blood. You would think Pharaoh would have gotten it when all of his water turns to blood that he should let these guys go. The next chapter, Exodus chapter 8, there's frogs, gnats, and flies, and they overwhelm the land. In chapter 9, all of the Egyptians' livestock died, and there was a plague of boils, and there was destructive hail. Chapter 10, there came a plague of locusts upon the crops. But the interesting thing, if you go back and you read that account, is that none of it touched the Israelites. None of it touched God's people. God was telling Pharaoh, let my people go. But also, none of these plagues were able to sway Pharaoh. I think it even says in there that God had hardened his heart. And finally, when it likely seemed that it couldn't get any worse... The boils and the locusts and the gnats and the river turning to blood, that all seems pretty bad. But when it seems like it couldn't get any worse, comes the final plague. The plague on the firstborn sons of Egypt. 
God says in chapter 11 that every firstborn in Egypt would die. Not just uh, boys, but livestock as well. But very, very critically, we have to hear this today. God gave the Israelites a command. That command was that they would slaughter a year-old lamb that was without defect on the 14th day of the month. And they would spread blood on the doorframe of every Israelite household. All of this leads to what God says to them just before the night comes, when the angel of death is going to come. Exodus 12, 12 through 14. God says this, on that, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So on the 14th day of the month, on the 14th day of what would come to be known as Passover, the blood from that spotless lamb identified the homes of the Israelites when the angel of death came. And each Israelite firstborn was spared. From then on, the Israelites would, of course, celebrate Passover. And at that first Passover, the shadow of the cross began to fall on humanity. However, somehow, even after this, the Israelites would go back and forth between serving God and serving idols. If you go read the Old Testament, you know, you think, how could they possibly have done this? And all I can think is, but for the grace of God, go I, right? If I was in the Old Testament, I probably would have done the same thing. But they would go back and forth between serving God and serving idols. Later on in Exodus, we'd see the people grow restless when Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. God calls Moses up there to Mount Sinai. He's going to reveal the Ten Commandments in a cloud and lightning, etch them on the stone. And in their restlessness, while their leader Moses is gone, we read in Exodus 32, they decide that they are going to build a golden calf to worship. Of course, after that, they'd wander the desert for 40 years. If you ever hear that expression, hear that phrase, I feel like I'm in the desert. That's where it comes from, the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. And when they were in the desert, that was when he would lead them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. A manna would fall from heaven to feed them. God miraculously provided for them. But even after wandering the desert, they would alternately endure captivity and celebrate freedom. You see, the Israelites, they were trying to keep God's law, but it was in vain because they were trying to keep it on their own strength. Now, eventually, God would give them earthly kings because that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be like other nations. They, they continued to tell Moses, hey, we want a king, so they gave him a king. Eventually, about the time of Saul and David, uh, Saul becomes the first king of Israel right? He becomes not so godly. Then David comes after Saul. And the Israelites, they would endure this succession of godly and not so godly kings. If you go read through all these books in the Old Testament, it will say so-and-so was king and he followed the ways of God. And the next one will say so-and-so was king and he did not follow the ways of God as his father did. Once again, these kings would lead them in and out of captivity. And as history moved on, it became apparent that something was going to need to change. This morning, I have three specific things that the shadow of the cross shows us this Easter season. Three things that show us the shadow proves the sunshine. First one is this. The shadow proves 
that we're no longer under a curse. The shadow proves we are no longer under a curse. I realize that talking about a curse, serious language for a Sunday morning church service, right? You're like, man, I came to church. I just barely got my coffee. Now you're here talking about curses. I know, it's a little bit serious, but hey, it's in the Bible. We know from reading the account of creation Genesis, though, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there was a curse that came upon all mankind. We're going to go to those first three chapters of Genesis so you can get ready to turn there if you want to. We're going to reference a few verses. If you want to turn there, follow along. I don't just want to assume that everyone knows the creation story by heart. We're actually living in a time where people know the stories of the Bible that we think are basic less and less and less. We don't have time to read the entire thing, obviously. So I'm just going to summarize a few things uh, in those first few chapters of Genesis so we can get to what we're looking for. Now in chapter 1 of Genesis, this is going to be familiar to most of you, God has created the heavens and the earth. First verse of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, creatures of the deep, created all of it. He created plants for the animals to eat. Genesis 1.31 tells us this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So in chapter 2, God sets about creating Adam and Eve. He's going to create man and woman, his own image. First, he forms Adam, and in verse 7, Genesis tells us that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is what differentiates humans from animals, right? God has breathed life into humans, and he hasn't done the same thing to animals. From here, Adam gets this amazing job of naming all of the animals, it tells us in verse 19. What a responsibility to get to name every animal that God has created on the earth. No one else but you. And I just, I mean, this is probably oversimplifying it, but I just wonder how Adam is like sitting on the, the edge of the river or the sea or whatever, and a fish swims up, and he's like, cod. That's a cod. You get a nice boring name, cod. C-O-D. Oh, platypus. That's a platypus. <laughs> right? How does he come up with these different names? But they seem so, so uh, obvious to us nowadays, right? You see an alligator, and an alligator seems like a very appropriate name for something with a spiky back and sharp teeth, right? Adam did all this, but Adam needed a helper. It says there was nothing on earth that could help him the way he desired. So in verse 21, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and he makes... Takes, makes a woman to be his helpmate. Now we get to chapter 3, which ominously in your Bibles is probably titled The Fall of Man. Spoiler alert, it gets pretty serious in here, right? Now, here, even Adam, they are deceived by the talking serpent. Now, in my mind, I read this. Ever since I was young, I've read this, and I thought this. In my mind, the talking snake, it should have been the first clue to Eve that something was off. When the snake shows up and begins to speak, Pastor Almeida agrees with me. I see that. I appreciate that. Snakes are scary enough. I don't like snakes, but when it started talking, it might have been good just to go the other way. <laughs> really, any animal, right? Because they didn't talk. When the snake started talking, might as well head out. You know, most scholars think, actually, that at this point, snakes walked on four legs. Because later on, they were cursed to the dirt. We'll read that in a moment. But that sounds even more scary, a snake on four legs talking. Either way, it was a talking snake, right? <laughs> she should have just gone the other way. 
At any rate, uh, Eve was deceived by Satan into eating from the one tree that God had told them not to eat from. She was able to get her husband, Adam, to eat from the tree because, of course, she was, right? The beautiful wife, of course, can get the husband to eat from the tree if she wants. God had told Adam in verse 17 of chapter 2, they must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or they would surely die. Up to this point, they hadn't known death. didn't exist. Of course, the humans, though, they wanted the one thing that they were not supposed to have. We're all humans, and we have a sinful nature, so we understand what they were feeling a little bit. Um, I think most of us probably would have made the same decision there. But now we're to the important part for our purposes this morning. The serpent is cursed to never walk on four legs again. The woman will now have pain in childbirth. childbirth. Her relationship with her husband will be different from that point on. We can see in verse 16. The two verses we're going to read together, Genesis 3, 17 and 19. Crucially, we see the curse upon Adam in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Dust you are, dust you will return. From this point forward, every man and every woman, except for in a couple isolated cases where God takes them to heaven, every man and woman would return to the dust. They would die, be buried in the ground. But even then, friends, the shadow of the cross was falling, even at the dawn of creation. Push your fast forward button a little bit, a couple of books in the Old Testament. We're going to read this important scripture in Deuteronomy. We're going to have it on the screen for you if you don't get there in time, where we see another important mention of a curse. This one is much more directed when it comes to what we talk about around Easter, because Deuteronomy 21-23, this is God talking, says this, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So because of their sin, Adam and Eve were under a curse, and indeed all mankind. Now we see in Deuteronomy here that anyone who hangs on a tree is under a curse. We zoom forward once more to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I told you we were going to jump around. Where we find these powerful words that Paul wrote. It says this in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that in order that blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of his spirit. You see, the law said that you were cursed if you hung upon a cross. Jesus, through no fault of his own, he would be crucified on a tree. God God, uh, spoke this curse in the Old Testament, and Jesus took that curse upon himself. He became guilty, and he took the punishment of all mankind. The curse was real, and Jesus took that curse when he died for every one of us. 
and he hung on the tree. But know this, friends, the shadow of the cross falls across time, and it proves that we are no longer under the curse. As Paul writes there in Galatians, Galatians, see, the shadow proves the sunshine. Next, we know the shadow proves the willingness of Jesus to give his life. The shadow of the cross falls upon us, and it proves the willingness of Jesus to give his life. I don't think it can be overstated, church, on Palm Sunday that Jesus willingly went to his death in Jerusalem. The disciples, right, we've talked a little bit about this off and on, they were ready to celebrate that Jesus had come to become king. But when he rode into Jerusalem that day, he knew right, what, right exactly what he was heading into. It was the light of God's kindness upon us that cast a shadow of the cross over Jerusalem that day. And it was God's kindness that had set the plan of salvation in motion centuries before. We're going to talk about uh, the scripture we always read on Palm Sunday here in a moment, the triumphal entry. But there's this important Old Testament scripture that we really need to note before we read that, and you'll, you'll understand why. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, and we know there was about a 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testament. And we see here the prophet Zechariah saying exactly what's going to happen 400 years earlier. That brings us to Matthew uh, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. We're going to camp here for a moment. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The shadow of the cross begins to grow more apparent as Jesus talks with just his closest friends. Now, we know that the disciples at this point, they did not completely understand what was happening. Even though Jesus was trying to tell them plainly, they did not quite understand. We know that there were other people following along with them on the road from Galilee, and it seems like Jesus felt like the 12 were the only ones who could really take what he was saying right here, which is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. But we can know with 100% certainty that Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead of him in the city that day. And shortly that that prophecy from Zechariah would be fulfilled. Remember, Jesus would have known the first five books of the Old Testament. Let's read Matthew 21, 1 through 11, the classic Palm Sunday scripture here. Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I read you those three scriptures for a reason. There's a few important things that we need to note as his people today. Knowing what lay ahead of him, Jesus chose to reveal himself. Now, Jesus had begun to be well-known in Galilee, right? He was healing people. He was raising them from the dead, and he'd become well-known outside of Jerusalem. And we can see from the preceding passages in here that there were others besides the disciples traveling with him. We see that that prophecy from Zechariah that we just read is quoted here in this passage. The reason we read both of those is because of this. It tells us that Jesus knew he was fulfilling Zechariah's words 400 years earlier. Jesus knew the prophecy. But so crucially, friends, also the Jewish people in the city, including those who were against Jesus and considered him to be a heretic, they would have known about the prophecy as well. And by riding into that city, Jesus was announcing to everyone far and wide that he was the Messiah, that he was the long-awaited king, And you can just imagine what Jesus must have felt. After all, the Bible says that he was fully man and fully God. That's all the emotions that we feel. Just imagine as he swung his leg up over the the colt and he began to ride. Jesus knew he was taking a step that could not be retracted. Knowing that the entirety of his life on earth had led them to this announcing his presence and his messiahship to those who would eventually nail him to the cross. He knew the prophecy. He knew what he was saying about himself when he quoted it. And he knew they would know it as well. Verse 9 tells us that there was a crowd behind him, those that had come along on the journey, and also that there was a crowd from Jerusalem coming out to meet him. Those from Jerusalem who had heard about this man Jesus and they had heard he was coming all laying their coats down before him, showering with him, him with praise, waving palm branches, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Literally, Hosanna means Lord, save us. The people on the road calling Jesus the son of David there, it shows clearly that they understood exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. But the same ones shouting, Lord, save us, were likely in the crowd a week later as the shouts rang out to crucify him. You see, friends, Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into that day. But as the shadow of the cross began to grow, the light of God's grace only grew brighter. And the shadow began to prove the sunshine. So that shadow, it proves we're no longer under a curse. It proves that Jesus willingly gave his life for us. And finally this, the shadow proves, the shadow of the cross proves our healing. Our world as we see it and live in it today, it is absolutely full of pain and suffering. 
we could get in a big circle and we could uh, take prayer requests and we could talk all day about people we know that are hurting. You can take big worldwide situations or you can take intensely personal ones that we would never vocalize in a room like this. And anywhere we look, we will see pain. We will see the results of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Now the big story that is, is, is of concern now that we see in the news all the time is of course the war in Ukraine and Russia. Millions and millions of people fleeing for their lives, becoming refugees. Thousands of people dying. I don't know about you, but as a fellow human, my heart breaks for the people that are caught in the crossfire. The innocent people who had nothing to do with this and they're caught in the middle of it. That's why we pray and that's why we give. We don't need to assign blame or talk cause and effect this morning, but we can see on the other side of the world today the results of a broken humanity. We can see the results of the fallen man on the other side of the world just on a massive scale. That's the story that headlines the news each day, but there are battles that are just as important happening every day inside you and inside of me. There are people fighting the effects of addiction all over the world every single day. They're wrestling with an enemy that seeks only to kill and to steal and destroy, but coming disguised in the falsehood of comforting thought or a pill or a bottle or an image. There's people that are fighting the effects of abuse of all types. They're wondering how do they interpret what they feel inside given the context of everything they've experienced that they know breaks God's heart. That doesn't line up with the word of God. Wondering why everyone else feels deep emotion, but they feel very little. It's one of my favorite songs says, dry eyes and the pouring rain. And it makes them feel like they'll never be whole again. Whatever's happening in their heart, it's never going to be fixed. There are those that are fighting depression. The thoughts that they'll never measure up to the standards of this world or the high standard that they've set for themselves or maybe the one in their family. And there are, of course, those wrestling with sickness or pain in their physical bodies. All of this brought upon mankind in the garden that day. But all of it also underneath the shadow of the cross. Turn with me this powerful scripture, Isaiah chapter 53. I want, to read, I want us to read these few verses within the context of everything we just touched on. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. So we're going to read here. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I want us to catch this this morning, friends. What Isaiah is saying here is that there is someone coming who will overcome all of this. Now, Isaiah, of course, couldn't see our current situation, but he was saying somehow in his heart he knew someone was coming who's going to overcome all of this. Someone that has the power to break the curse. And it's made even more incredible, and we know Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem. 
You see, God was speaking in the shadow of the cross. It was already falling. And for those who felt and who feel despised and rejected, those words we just read in Isaiah, across the world and in these chairs today, if you feel despised and rejected, read what it says there. On the cross, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with our deepest grief. He took the curse upon himself, and he felt all of it. You see, the Hebrew word that we translate despise from Isaiah 53, 3 there, it means literally to consider something or someone worthless or not worthy of attention. Now, when I hear the word despise, probably like you, uh, I, I inject some emotion into that. But what's being communicated here is actually even worse. It's that the people Jesus came to save in Jerusalem that day, they dismissed him without a second thought. They considered him worthless, not worthy of attention. So friends, if you're here and your entire life you have felt dismissed, if you're here and you felt like you've never could measure up, know this. It says this in Isaiah. He is acquainted with your sorrow. If you're fighting the fight of your life every single day against an addiction or a habit that you have tried and tried to wrestle against, but you can't get that thing to the ground. Friends, read what it says. Verse 4 of Isaiah 3 there. It was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Or maybe you're battling illness today. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. Know this, friends, Palm Sunday 2022, if you need healing in your body, your mind, your soul, or your spirit, and maybe all of them, he's come to give us a clean slate. He's come to take sickness and to give back health. He's come to take guilt and to give back forgiveness. Friends, make no no mistake. Despite the fallen condition of this world, he's acquainted with our sorrow, and by his stripes, we are healed. If you stand on nothing else, you can stand on that. And the shadow of the cross proves the light of God's grace this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready to close? Remember, we started by talking about how the Israelites, they sacrificed the first Passover lamb as God prepared the final plague against the Egyptians. Well, that first Passover lamb was sacrificed in Egypt on the 14th day of the month, and it spared the Israelite children from certain death. Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, was sacrificed in the midst of the Jewish Passover celebration, most likely on the 14th day. They took a spotless lamb then, and 2,000 years later, many thousands of years later, they took the spotless lamb of God. The shadow of the cross he went to, it falls over all of human history, but it only proves that the light has come. The light has come, and he has come that we may have life abundantly, like Jesus says in John 10.10. This morning, as we reflect on what the depth of the cross means, how Jesus knew he was going to his death, but he did it for you and me. 
God's desire for us this morning is to understand that because of the cross, the wonderful light of Christ can shine in every one of our hearts. So this morning, friends, we're going to prepare to sing for just a minute, but uh, I want us to reflect in, in this quiet moment on the fact that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was acquainted with my sorrow. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that indeed you went to the cross that day and you took the curse upon yourself. And when you did that for those three days, you felt every single emotion that I will ever feel. You felt every dismissal and betrayal that anyone in this room will ever feel. You not only felt them, but you died. You did not stay in that grave and you rose again as we'll celebrate next week. This morning, Lord, we place our hope and our trust in you.